What's good, Internets? Welcome to the third episode of Step Off Radio. Apologies for the lapse in consistency on these podcasts, guys. Uh, we lost our editor back in August, and since then I've essentially been learning and teaching myself how to use the editing software that we use here on the show. Uh, but we got a great episode lined up for you guys. We worked real hard to make sure that we could finally bring it to you. So uh, make sure you like and subscribe to our page, as well as follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Step Off Magazine. And uh, we hope you enjoy, guys. The legendary jazz blues singer Nina Simone once said that, quote, It's an artist's duty to reflect the times in which we live. While artists in every medium share this obligation to be interpreters and storytellers of our own respective eras, perhaps nowhere is this responsibility more apparent and integral to the art form than in the realm of satirical comics and cartoons. In a digital age where cheap, unfunny memes are literally plentiful by the millions, littering practically every corner of the web from obscure internet chat rooms and message forums, the most mainstream of social media platforms, the art of thoughtful, clever, satirical, political cartoons is in many ways underappreciated, if not at all outright overlooked craft. However, in today's virulent political climate, by no means are satirical cartoons at a loss for content or inspiration. In the age of a Trump administration increasingly emboldened and violent far-right faction in the U.S., cartoonists could literally churn out multiple comics a day and still not come even close to being at a loss for content and Apple commentary. In light of these strange times our country has found itself in the midst of, perhaps no artist represents this work ethic better or is up to the task more than Joaquin Junco Jr., better known by his artist name, Junco Canche. As one of the best rising political cartoonists in the country, since 2009, Junco has done political cartoons featured in publications such as El Coyote Crossing Borders, the San Diego Free Press, La Prensa San Diego, as well as the Southwestern College Sun and most recently working as a regular guest contributor for the nationally syndicated comic strip La Cucaracha from San Diego native Lalo Acaraz. As a Chicano artist, Junco's art and satirical comics offer an often overlooked perspective view of both the state and national politics from an adamantly and unapologetic Chicano-Mexican-American perspective. Given a unique look in the politics and life around the U.S.-Mexico border region and southwestern United States, Few artists have managed to so cleverly and concisely comment on today's political climate of the past few years better than Junko. Here at Step Off Radio, we recently had the opportunity to sit down and speak with Junko on a variety of topics, from his memories growing up in Mexico in the late 90s, the countless nuances of the lived Chicano experience here in the U.S., cultural appropriation versus appreciation, decolonization of the arts and pop culture, as well as his most recent collaborations with musical artists such as Cosmic Force. So without further ado, we hope you all enjoy our discussion with the one and only Junko Canche. Growing up in the early um, mid-90s, you cited anime shows such as X-Men, Batman anime series, and Goof Troop as early influences which inspired you to uh, make your own art. Uh, what was the moment that you knew you wanted to pursue art as an actual full-fledged career? 
Hmm. See, that's the thing. I, I think I've always had the, like, the secret, um, like, like the secret uh, wish in me that, man, I want to be an animator. I watch those shows, and uh, I'll be like, man, that'll be cool, but I don't think it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, man, I, I wish there was another way to tell the story, but... I gotta be honest. It's kind of <laughs> like I mean, were you always doodling happened. growing up? I mean, like were oh, yeah, you always, yeah. you know, drawing like yeah, on, like always. notebooks and stuff like yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you couldn't put a writing tool in my hand and not expect anything that's just to be doodled on. Yeah. <laughs> but so what happened was, I was in, uh, I was in, I was in, uh, I was in eleventh grade. Yeah, in high school, um, class of '08. Go Raiders, and <laughs> so at, at the time I was taking a, was taking like three or four AP classes, mm-hmm. and yeah, I was struggling with all of them, dude. And so I was just uh, looking at my report, at my progress report at the time, and I was like, "Damn, dude, I'm sucking ass at everything. <laughs> what the hell? Except art." And I'm like, "Well, you know, I'm, I like doing art. It's the one subject where I'm not doing bad." Yeah, I guess I guess I'll do art. Was there ever like an expectation from your family? Like, were you expected to do something, or was it just kind of you were still trying to figure out like really what you were want to pursue in life? Mm, <clears throat> I think not an expectation, but it was a uh, like I guess the family was seeing like, hey, he's gonna do, he's gonna eventually do something in art. Because mm-hmm. um, as a uh, as morritos, me and my carnal, we were taking to we we're taking to art classes. Um, at the time we lived in Tijuana, so it wasn't like there was a, there was a class in, in school that were like, hey, you know, kids, you want an elective, you can take art. So we had to uh, take a, uh, classes outside of school. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, because uh, my parents both saw that me and my carnal, we like to get down with like drawing. So like, all right, this, uh, we have to get them art classes. Yeah. So all. they're very supportive of that from an oh, early yeah, age. Oh yeah, no, they're, it's, um. It's like something that I always keep in mind and always cherish because uh, so many artists that I've met, they're like, yeah, well, my parents never supported me or uh, they think that I'm wasting my time doing art. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, I, I don't, I didn't get any of that. So damn, That's awesome. Good. Yeah, it's, it's such, a, it's such a, a pivotal moment, you know, especially when your family is supporting you as yeah. opposed to, you know, constantly working uphill to that, you know. Oh, yeah. So um, over the years, your work has been featured in various publications, including El Coyote uh, Crossing Borders, uh, La Prensa, uh, San Diego Free Press, and the Southwestern College Sun. Now, starting, you got your start in an underground zine in 2009. Now, for listeners out there that may not be aware, uh, what is a zine? And how much role did it play in your first initial steps of pursuing your, uh, of pursuing your career path? A zine is a self-made magazine. Like you, you just, you... You write it, edit it, uh, put it together, and put it out there. Uh, you know, it's a really cheap way to pass on information, art, whatever you wanna gonna pass on. It's a very underground, very punk rock kind of medium mm-hmm. to get the word out. And well, for starters, it's a. It was a. I I think it was like the first like lead that I ever had, that, like the first door that really opened um in in high school i was already getting a feel of doing like political art um editorial cartoons and 
Yeah, so it was in one of my classes at San Diego City College. Uh, one of my friends sat next to me, and she saw that I was doodling. I was like, hey, you like to draw, right? And I was like, yeah. Uh, I have a, me and my friends have a zine. You, you know, draw for us? I was like, hell yeah. At the time, <laughs> my mom was already telling me, like, you know, you should be drawn for a newspaper or something. So, yeah, that was, a, that was the first, first open door. Yeah. And then it was the first, uh, uh, the first deadline. And the first, not one, not hating the deadline and not <laughs> wanting to turn anything in. So it was like the first for everything. You know? And, you know, later on, I made my own zines as well. Um, like, I was looking at the stuff that, that was written that I drew. Like, all right, let's make a zine with, like, my drawings, my thoughts. And it's pretty simple to... It's very simple to make, you know. Mm-hmm. I, there's, like, a lot of... Uh, for graphic designers, uh, there's, like, all these tools that make it make it super easy. Yeah. But like, anybody can do it. Um, and how did you distribute these? Like, what was, like, kind of your main, like, way of, like, um, getting mm-hmm. that out there to the public? Zinefests. Yeah. Zinefests. Um, those were, like, the first... Um, events that I started attending to um, to get put my art out there uh, in San Diego then after I and when I moved to Rialto uh, the in an Empire Zine Fest so that was like like my first tour mm-hmm. so to say like in uh, I looked at every Zine Fest that was around in, in SoCal and I was like at the time I already had a car and good thing about being in, the, in an Empire is that Everything's like an hour away, LA, OC, San Diego. So that was, yeah, Zine Fest were very important to getting the word out, not just locally, but in other cities. Mm-hmm. And with these other publications, did, did you submit your work or did they reach out to you or like was it kind of a combination of both? Yeah, combination of both. Um, in, I never drew for the uh, City Times in San Diego City College, but that I moved to I transferred to Southwestern mm-hmm. and by the time I was like alright you know here it is uh, I have to be drawn for a newspaper so I applied for the school newspaper and I did pretty good yeah. at the at the Sun then um, I got recommended to draw in for, the, for La Prensa and it was a combination of both um, my teacher knew the, the public the editor, so I just went out there, got the meeting. Um, there was a, I pitched a card, uh, an illustration for La Prensa, and the editor was like, "Nope, we're not. It's too dangerous. We're not gonna, we're not gonna put up, put it out there." And oh, it's actually a friend who suggested the idea for the, uh, for that illustration, and I told him, "No, nope, they're not gonna print it." And he said, "All right, you know, let me hit up the homies at the San Diego Free Press and." They called me back and they're like, "Hey, we really like your stuff. Do you want to draw for us?" Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of both. Like sometimes I reached out. Sometimes, uh, most of the times, I was the one that approached people. Yeah. What was that? What was that? The artwork that they uh, turned out. Do you remember? Do you remember what yeah, it was? I forgot who it was, but I was criticizing somebody that. Uh, I was criticizing somebody that was influential in. Uh, in Barrio Logan, uh, yeah. the name slips my mind, but it was just... And they, did they decided, no, they weren't going to, it was too I guess risky. May, maybe <laughs> the editor was uh, friends with him, uh-huh. so I was like, nah, dude, nah, that's not cool. <laughs> 
<clears throat> well, that leads us into our next question. <clears throat> so your art comes from a position that's decidedly uh, pro-indigenous, pro-Chicano, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, and it's a ra- rallying cry against uh, white supremacist, proto-fascist system, which unfortunately dominates just about every aspect of one's existence here in the United States. Uh, why do you believe it's important now more than ever, especially under a Trump regime, to make this type of art, which not only serves as an outlet to express dissent and resistance, but to challenge the institutions which perpetuate and uphold these, these oppressive systems? Man, I feel like I've been watching a lot of movies lately because I was about the first word that came to mind is a causality. Um, you have somebody that's uh, endorsed by not just the, the far right, but uh, these... Uh, uh, white supremacist movements and I just think that we have to rise to the occasion not that uh, not that the voices the the art uh, that is coming out from uh, pro-indigenous pro-chicano anti-capitalist mentality not that it's it didn't matter before the uh, Trump presidency but it's now more than ever it's like you can't just like sit back and just think, just feel that, all right, you know, this is, it's, it's going to fly by, it's really not going to matter, it's like, hey, you know, um, you want to, it's the whole, like, make America great again thing, like, let's go back to the way it was when uh, minorities didn't really have a voice, and that's, uh, when, when those, times. when those people, quote unquote, yeah, knew their place, go. essentially, that's what they want to throw back. It's yeah. like, yeah, you want to. You want to go back to something, you want to go back to that, dude, it's not going to happen. And, you know, it's even whatever steps you take towards that, it's, we're not going to just going to, not just going to stand by and they walk all over us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a, like you look back at uh, some of the first uh, Chicanos, Latinos that were in whatever field uh, that let's see in in film and film and books and music ever it's um, like it, it was just like one artist one you know like one name two names or right now it's a lot more and it, you can strive for towards more representation more inclusion of people so we've done a hell of a progress if I may say so oh, absolutely we're only gonna it's only going to keep getting better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like the value of like making political art, right? There's the old saying that like art imitates life and life right. imitates art. So like by making revolutionary or political art, that it speaks volumes to like the popular culture that's happening right now. This like right. kind of what we're going to talk about later, but this like rise of potentially like what they call like a Chicano renaissance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So being Chicano in this country is a unique experience to say the least. To quote Edward James Almost from the film Selena, there's almost this unspoken expectation that we're obligated to, quote, be more Mexican than the Mexicans and more American than the Americans, and both at the same time. Listen, being Mexican-American is tough. Anglos jump all over you if you don't speak English perfectly. Mexicans jump all over you if you don't speak Spanish perfectly. We've got to be twice as perfect as anybody else. Our family has been here for centuries, and yet they treat us as if we just swam across the Rio Grande. I mean, we gotta know about John Wayne and Pedro Infante. We gotta know about Frank Sinatra and Agustin Lara. We gotta know about Oprah and Christina. Yeah. So being born in Chula Vista and moving to Tijuana 
when you were still a child and then returning by the time you were beginning to approach your teenage years, was there ever a struggle to find or maintain an identity being the product of these two worlds, so to say, being both Mexican and American? Um, well, see, I was really young when I, when I moved back to Tijuana. So, when I moved to Tijuana, so I never really, like, growing up, I never really had that feel like, hey, well, I'm American and I'm in a, I'm in a different country. Uh, no, um, you know, from a, like, that was, growing up, that was one of my mentality that I'm Mexican. Mm-hmm. I grew up being Mexican. I, man, I still remember them singing the, the Mexican national anthem and, like, the juramento la bandera and all that kind of stuff. So, I, it just, uh, it, uh, the educational system, you really got conditioned into that. Mm-hmm. So, so that was, but it definitely was true, like that clash of identities or finding out my place. That definitely was the case when we moved from the, my family and we moved from Tijuana over to here. Um, my first thought was like, man, you know, I've been hearing all these stories about the United States, how like, the speak English and people becoming Americanized and not wanting to acknowledge their Mexican roots. I was like, no, that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to always acknowledge that I'm Mexican and be proud of being Mexican. Mm-hmm. So that was always the case, like, coming in. Uh, you know, my parents didn't tell me, like, hey, well, now we're in the United States. So you got to act American, be American. That really wasn't the case. Dude, I even, for the longest time, I hate, I I refused to go to a Taco Bell. I was like, Dude, that's <laughs> beneath me. I, I, I ate real Mexican food. What's up? But, yeah, so that was the case. And... You know, times have changed. There's uh, definitely a lot more acceptance about being Chicano than, like, let's say, like, the 50s. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, and besides right here, Border City, there's, you're always going to be in touch with, uh, you know, with the Mexican culture. Mm-hmm. So Just by proximity. Yeah. So I feel that transition towards becoming a, a Chicano or Mexican-American, whatever you will, like, it really wasn't that rough. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to speak Spanish, you could speak Spanish. Uh, you know, there might have been a few things here and there in middle school and high school, but, you know, it was nothing bad. Uh, nobody uh, told me on my carnal to go back to Mexico or nothing like that. It was just kind of like, just kind of like wake-up calls. Or like, hey, you know, this is, this is how it is. Not everybody's going to agree with the way that you live. Mm-hmm. So, you know, toughen up. So, yeah. So, um, I think what I do remember, though, is uh, I had to, like, later on, as I was getting older, I was, like, learning how to, you know, what was Chicano. Mm-hmm. And... Like, like, give a few examples. Like, what would, like... You know, just, uh, um, say, like, uh, like, getting calo, like, like, understanding it. Or just like uh, learning a little more about uh, street culture, that kind of stuff. Um, like the indigenous, uh, like like embracing the the indigenous cultures. Um, no, that was like I don't. I. I want to say that like, it's something that came natural to me. It, it wasn't something that that I learned somewhere. Like hey, you got to be proud of being indigenous. Like. Just probably because like, I came from a, 
very Catholic background in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So now that I was away from the grasp of the Catholic Church, I got started reading about history. I was like, oh, damn, the Catholic Church did this? They did that? No, that's swag, dude. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, we were talking about that uh, <laughs> when we yeah. were, when, when Jag and Fett were here, actually. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. we touched on that quite a bit. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, having to decolonize to, to a certain extent our minds, right? Like, yeah. And, uh, you know. But that kind of takes us to the next thing that we're going to talk about, right? Which was that last month, uh, NBC published an article entitled A Chicano Renaissance with a question mark. <laughs> uh, a new Mexican-American generation embraces the term. Uh, what does it mean to you to be Chicano? Especially like a Chicano whose profession seems to focus heavily on political satire in the age of Trump. Mm -hmm. Well, all right, here's this, this story. Uh, I think this is the moment where I acknowledged that I became Chicano. Um, I was like two or three years ago. I went to visit my childhood friend in Tijuana. Mm -hmm. I, him and me were always together in, in elementary school. So I haven't seen him in years. And I went back and I saw him. I was like, so I was like, I was like yeah, that's the homie right there. I walked up to him and I'd be like, hey, get on that way. And the first thing he tells me, he's like, man, you, you, the way you talk, you sound so American right now. So I, in the process of, and like in, in microseconds, like I had a whole... My psyche took me aside and had a conversation with me like, hey, you know, like, yeah, that, that hurt. That really hurt. But at the same time, well, you can't speak English right. You can't speak Spanish right. There you go. You're full circle Chicano now. <laughs> but so uh, being Chicano and what it means to me, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's cliche, and everybody says it, but like, need that key, need that, yeah. I think I came at a point in my life where I'm like, well, uh, the, you know, I'm a mixture of my environment being here in the United States while retaining and re retaining my Mexican culture. Um, and not just that, but also just like, I guess, in the decision process. Um, cultural significance I always place um, you know place forward um, I've, the the Mexican population here in the United States you know what like to me what what matters the most to what it's uh, in my decision making process like how is it going to affect uh, the Mexican, Mexican-American, indigenous, immigrant component of my community because that's who, that's who I support. Mm -hmm. That's who I want to embrace. And it also, you know, it's acknowledging every aspect of that, you know, you got uh, people, that just, people that are Mexican, people that Mexican-American, uh, indigenous, uh, immigrant, undocumented, all of that together and not any of that well you know um, I'm Mexican but I don't, I'm not like those other Mexicans I'm not an Indio I'm not I'm not a paisa chunti whatever it's you know all these terms and all these like dividing cocktail games I don't play that yeah I never liked them and mm -hmm. you know, that goes against everything I believe in It's it seems very much that the one hallmark of the Chicano experience is Walking this fine line 
between these two worlds, but never completely really yeah. fitting into one's uh, box completely, you know. And human beings are really good at that. We're very good at putting each other or one another in boxes. And when yeah. we don't <laughs> neatly fit into those, then, you know, people, like, just assume, you know. Yeah. It kind of feels like. Yeah, it makes you really wonder, though, like, how much, because uh, we were talking about history, how much the history of the United States, the colonial settler element, uh, and what has gone into imperialism now, which is, like, the U.S. invading other countries for national resources, migration happening because of the geopolitics of the United States, yeah. and how it's kind of helped, like, uh, foster, like, a, a Chicano identity and to a certain extent, like, by the depravity of what they're doing to our people in those countries... We're having to come here and unite here under a common identity mm-hmm. yeah. um, of like decolonizing our minds, embracing our indigenous you know histories uh, that have been repressed by both the Catholic Church and 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 yeah, U.S. society. U.S. society in general. You want to take the next one? Sure. So the next question we have uh, is what we frequently see happen with uh, second and third generation Mexican Americans is the distancing of themselves from their culture in exchange for this idea of, like, supposedly assimilating into mainstream American culture. We all see how that well that works. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, since the rise of Chicano civil rights movement uh, in the 60s and 70s, the, there's been a pushback and resistance against this forced assimilation, uh, which has only gained more momentum in uh, this age uh, of emboldened racial violence and uh, intimidated, intimidation against Mexicans. I mean, we all have Facebook and we see yeah. the Facebook videos of people talking shit about people speaking Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, under, especially under this uh, administration. Do you, really, uh, do you think that we are currently living through, as the NBC article described, you know, a new Ch- Chicano resi- renaissance? Mm, I, uh, I don't know about that because it, it might, you know, dismiss everything that's happened uh, before us, like the uh, civil rights movement, uh, the 80s, you know, it's like to say, well, that's, you know, that kind of stuff, it's, you know, it really didn't matter, or maybe not. Uh, see, us as Chicanos, we, especially like scholar, scholar Chicanos, like we look back at what happened in the past and we acknowledge it. It's uh, right there and painted in uh, the records of Chicano Park. Mm-hmm. So um, I just think that uh, mainstream media is like starting to pay more attention to us. Like, hey, you know, uh, might not, they might not be so savages after all. They might have uh, something else going on there. And we're all like, bro, where you been all this time? <laughs> this is what he's been trying to tell you. Welcome to the party. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're seeing like a, uh, a particularly exciting time in, in Chicano Park's history with the, the the museum that's about to open. That's mm. going to be highlighting Chicano art, yes. Chicano history, yes. and that's like um, going to be from the youth that were there at that city council meeting I attended. Uh, they were very excited to have a place to learn about their history and to learn about you know the art and the and, the, and also to a certain extent the spiritual elements of like indigenous culture. A preservation, you know. Yeah, you know, yeah. getting you know, educating more people who are not familiar with our culture and our history. Oh yeah, a lot of people themselves, because the cat, the cultural Catholicism that comes into play yeah. of, you know, what the Spanish did with Hispanicization, right? Trying to yeah. eliminate our indigenous cultures. Well, just or just replace it with Catholicism. Yeah, or people just not being aware because so many people that were giving their testimonies in front of that. Um, that council were saying how like 
maybe something like that had existed when they were kids, maybe they would have come to, um, they would have embraced a Chicano identity or knew about their history earlier on as opposed to learning it like in college or high school or right. something like that. Well, not to dismiss completely like the, like the whole idea of like people asking, is there a Chicano renaissance, you know, like, um, it's great that people are paying more attention to what's going on within Chicano culture and it's open due to the struggles of our ancestors and we're always going to, you know, always going to, you know, pay homage to what they did and thank them for like their struggles for our, so that we could, uh, reap the benefits of today mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, I should have paid attention. The media should have paid attention back in the day, but you know. But let's. Since focus is now on us, let's do the best that we can. Let's not get lost in all this like you know, pandering now. Exactly. Awesome. So that brings us to our next topic. So, with attention, with attention, hmm. brings it brings our culture, what have you to a broader audience. Now, another topic which has been received a lot of attention in recent years is that center around cultural appropriation versus appreciation, especially with Mexican and Mexican-American culture, from the mainstream and cultural figures such as Frida Kahlo and Selena, to the growing popularity of Mexican food and cuisine outside the Southwest, and even the mainstream incorporation of Mexican holidays such as Dia de los Muertos, or where does one draw the line and make the distinction between appreciation and then all-out appropriation from outside groups and people? Oh, man, that's... I think I was just thinking about this question uh, yesterday. Um, like, that's a tough one, for sure. Uh, that is a tough one. Um, I gotta admit, I, I'm kind of like, I'm gonna to say that I can be a chismoso. I spend a lot of time, like on my my free time, I spend a lot of time on, on Instagram just Lurking through the freaking Chicano <laughs> cheese, man. Dude, it's, it's crazy how, you know, for every little thing, people are, uh, like, putting others on blast. Like, don't follow this person. Oh, it's, they support it's this, the worst. This and that. Yes. But I've, I don't take it very seriously. Well, I'm going, what I'm going to say is that, yeah, just, I know that uh, one of the things is that people, yeah, putting people on blast like these people are culture vultures, this, this and that. Um, I think I, I used to think that there was a like there was a really very clear line of what is cultural appropriation and what what is not. Right now, I just find it a little more blurred because um, see you've been seeing it a lot nowadays. Like you put somebody out on blast, but then people are going to find dirt on you and they're going to put you on blast. Um, that was a seeing didn't, uh, didn't Nicki Minaj put somebody on blast for culture appropriating like black culture. And then she, I think it was Cardi B or somebody she, like that. I want to say then Nicki Minaj is like, you see her in a video dressed like a geisha. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Something I do like, remember something like something that. Like, yeah. Dude, like this, but well, getting back on topic is that, um, one of the things for me that I've been, that I'm still trying to work on is like building a thicker skin, uh, in that I don't want to get all round up over every little thing that has to do with cultural appropriation. I draw the line, 
mostly when it has to do with like representation or sexualization of of Chicano women and indigenous women. Mm-hmm. And you see the rates of women of color, uh, they tend, they get to, they often get put through a lot worse uh, when it comes to like uh, any any kind of abuse. That's mm-hmm. where I draw the line. Um, it's something I really can't stand. But otherwise, um, I, I use, like, all these uh, friggin', these friggin', um, like, Ivy League kids, they're um, dressed up on Cinco de Mayo with their fake mustache, their, yeah. their tans, their poncho, whatever. It's like, uh, I mean, not to, not to say, like, people shouldn't call them out. I just don't waste my time on that anymore. I'm like, man, why do I... I'm not going to waste my time trying to make you look like an ass because you're already look, making yourself look like an ass. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point, are you past that then? Does that not really... Does that roll up your back now or does it still bother you? Or You know, I mean, they look like asses, so I just laugh at it. Um, when if When it's actually like really embraced and condoned by uh whatever um like like the university or in even a bigger scale then then yeah you know just like hey you know that's that's not cool Uh, we have to find have to enter dialogue and you know tell people like this is why it's not cool to do that um so but like right now Maybe if back in the day we, people were a little more defensive about uh, people, other outsiders coming in and uh, taking our stuff, maybe none of this, we wouldn't be at the point where we are right now. But I think just at this point, it's a lot of culture has been up for grabs and it's going to get mainstreamed. It's going to get hit by that mainstream beam. And that's why you have like Cinco de Mayo celebrated by non-Mexicans. That's why... You, uh, you see Frida on every other T-shirt that's worn by my hipster chicks. I, it's gonna happen. People want to make money, and even our gente too. Like, uh, don't hey, this Frida shirt sells. Well, all right, let's make more Frida shirts. Who cares? People know who Frida was, what she did, her life. Um, that uh, Republican girl's rocking a Frida shirt. She's all for women, but she doesn't know that. Frida was a hardcore communist. Who cares? She just she just paid me that feria. It's <laughs> keep making them. So yeah, it's um, it's been mainstreamed. Mm, so yeah. was, I'm like, wow, and sometimes you really can't complain because people gotta eat too. It's yeah, it's true because we were talking about this earlier. That sometimes it does make me feel a certain kind of way when mm. we'll see people that. In, in, in Wisconsin, kind of lotes loaded corn, but then the man, uh, lote man in the body was getting hassled by the police, though. <laughs> yeah, the loaded corn thing. But also, like, the Frida and, like, and even Che, like, you know, you see, like, we have, you know, you know, Frida, I'm glad you said what, like, acknowledge, like, Frida is a communist. People always pacify our, like, revolutionary, like, icons. Like, oh that's it's like inspirational moments. <laughs> yeah, it just look, uh, but... And so that's where I kind of personally draw the line too, right? Is like the power dynamic between like white culture appropriating our culture and and pacifying it in a way that like kind of like, I would just say like completely makes it almost unidentifiable, Mm -hmm. right? Like Frida is just this hip image now for hipster chicks to wear. And like, I swear to you, I saw a picture of Che 
that had someone erased Che's face and put Bernie Sanders' face on on it. And, uh, you know, Che is a, is a widely identifiable revolutionary icon, uh, but I guess those are, that's, I guess, like, on a personal level where I'm like, if somebody's monetizing our figures to pacify them, like, Bernie yeah. Sanders is by no means a fucking Che Guevara. Like, uh, it's interesting how that, that's a, a, a economics is a, is involved in, in what gets appropriated and how. Mm-hmm. Like, for me, my main concern is if I'm going to represent like, anybody from our history or our, if I'm going to portray our traditions, put it out there, inform people, I want to make sure that I am, uh, whatever information I'm passing on, that is authentic, that it's uh, as straight from the source as can be. Mm-hmm. I give you, like, like, the real, give you the whole enchilada. <laughs> anyway, that's... That's it. Or whatever people else do, like, just try not to get too concerned by it. Like, just go my own way. Word, no doubt. Internets, don't touch that dial. Step Off Radio will be right back. But first, a couple messages from friends of the show. What up, Step Off Radio? This is Nate Witzel with SDLovesHipHop.com. If you vibe with Rob and the good folks here at Step Off Magazine, then chances are you'll love what's going on with the SD Loves Hip Hop podcast. It's available on all streaming platforms. We recently had San Diego's own Odessa Kane, Bay Area Spitter Locksmith, and 2018 SDMA Artist of the Year nominee Parker Edison on the podcast. Right now we have DJ Bar One, South Central MC Jack, both on deck. Come and be a part of the conversation on hip hop as a catalyst for change over at sdloveshiphop.com. Again, that's SD like San Diego, sdloveshiphop.com. Peace, love, and hip hop. Now, in your work, there's not just this sense of strong Chicano identity, but this philosophy of decolonization as well in your artwork. What does decolonization mean to you personally, and how is it expressed and manifests in both your artwork and broader artistic circles? For me, decolonization is uh, like the like the investigation, discovery, um, acknowledgement, and spread of indig- the teaching of indigenous indigenous culture beliefs. Um, so I was like, I was sixteen when I. Uh, decided to leave the Catholic Church and keep like researching more about um, my indigenous heritage, and it wasn't a it wasn't an easy choice. Um, there came a point where just the truth of how Catholicism was spread in the New World it was just it was just really really hard for me to bear. I was like, all right, you know, this like being Catholic is the only life that you know up to this point, and do you really want to? This is all happening in my head. Like, do you really want to break away from that? Mm-hmm. And what if you're wrong and you die, you end up going to hell? You know, think about your family. Yeah. How much, yeah. like, your abuelita is invested in you going to catechism and learning all these prayers. You know, are you really just going to break away from that? And what are you going to do if like, your whole family goes to Misa? Are you just going to say no? And at the same time, but now you know the truth. You know how it happened. And... If you keep on going to church like nothing happened, you're just um, you're just saying it's okay that all the all my all these ancestors uh, were killed and all this knowledge was lost. That's the feeling that I had. I was like, I just feel like something was stolen from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that I see the world right now, right, the way that I see the I've seen I saw the world to that point. It was just very Catholic, very Western. And 
there was no other way to see it. And to this point, it's like, until now. Like, I don't think that is this another thing I see in the chisme of of the Chicano Instagram is like all this like all this dick measuring contest. Like, hey, I'm more decolonized than you. Well, no, I'm more decolonized <laughs> than you. You still go to Misa. You're rocking La Virgen de Guadalupe. And like, yeah, well, you know, the way you think is not decolonized enough. And I just think it's it's an illusion to think that anybody's going to be uh, that decolonized that you go back, uh, your mentality, the way of seeing the world goes back to the way before 19, before 1491. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. Right now, uh, another important aspect of decolonizing that I tell people, it's not so much about... Uh, going back the way things were because it's not going to happen you just pick out the pieces and do the best that you can uh, a lot of people don't like they don't really have a clear idea where their indigenous roots come from I do I know that uh, a part of my dad's family is Maya and that's why I rock the like the last name Canche mm-hmm. and uh, I think I have I have it pretty good in retracing uh, a lot of it to a point because I didn't I didn't grow up with the Maya culture I didn't I don't speak Mayatan I don't know a lot of uh, traditional Maya uh, like festivities anything like that there's only so much you can go when you initiate the colonizing process and it's gonna take a lot of time but if you're anything like I was that just the truth of the spread of Catholicism it's really too much. It, you can be at peace with yourself, and now it's the best time to start. Yeah, it very much seems like it's it's an individual's own personal journey. I I, I call it the woke Olympics when you go on you know, social media. That's what it very seems much like a competition, and I understand why people come to a different conclusion at different times because because yeah. especially when you're Mexican the Mexican culture it's so very hard when Catholicism is, is tied so much into the cultural practices yeah. and traditions you know, <laughs> they're so intertwined it's almost it's almost impossible kind of to, to separate those two so I understand why some people have more difficulty than others to an extent you know oh, yeah. or, they, or they come to, they come to their own personal realizations at different times and sometimes yeah. people well if you didn't come to the same conclusion exactly when I did well then like you said you're not because when I'm woken up or whatever you want to say. It's interesting. Actually, it makes me want to ask a question because, like, a lot of us have this shared experience, right, that yeah. have come away from the church when you, like, are, like, Robert, I'm very much for me the same age as you, right? Like, it's like, oh, I'm, like, 16. I'm like, so the Spanish did what? And I'm, like, looking yeah. through the books and being like, so why do we believe this horrible mess? <laughs> but a lot of people have to choose. Like, I've had family members in my own family who are like, yeah, I don't really believe this, but I don't want to lose the family because there is a strong cultural Catholic element because of the lack of our identity with our indigenous cultures that like the Catholic church takes a center role, like after baptisms and, you know, fucking first communions and even quinces are like, you know, quinceaneros are very like religious and, you know, functions still, um, you know, like it seems like you're losing out on all that. So like, how do you personally navigate that like middle ground between, you know, the family element Mm -hmm. that's deeply tied with the church and the truth, as we know, we know it, right? Like that Catholic church bad for native peoples. No, I think that, um, you know, just in general, I feel that uh, maybe men have a little easier time decolonizing because, uh, from what I, from what I remember growing up, is that um, 
like just for men you could just uh, uh say that you're catholic and you're good uh women have a more active role in uh spreading catholicism in uh the mexican families that's uh, an interesting take i never actually took that into consideration that's that's what i feel like um because it was like i remember my mom and my grandma just uh, waking everybody up to take them to misa and yeah. taking us to uh, to catechism uh, and everybody knows that uh, women have a more active role within the church in general uh, for men it's just like uh, nah I'm, I'm good with misa but you know I'll set up everything for the party for the bautizo for the quince anything um, or maybe that's just what I saw my dad never went to misa and it wasn't until uh, many years later, I found out that my dad was a Mormon. Yeah, but even then, he kind of already forgot about uh, just going to Mormon church or whatever. You bring up a good point, though, that like, I never really thought about either, about the gendered labor that happens with, like, you know, obviously in our cultures that have, like, machismo as an element to it, you know, that there's, you know, child rearing is specifically gendered to be, like, a femme, feminine thing, right? Um... And it, it seems like I never, but I never made the correlation that, yeah, like that would also fall on the religious upbringing and yeah. like, uh, um, so yeah, interesting stuff. Cause you're having to navigate, like you said, like you're having to talk to like, oh, well, about like, I don't believe in God anymore. Yeah. And you know, that could be a really hard conversation for the person who like, bathed you and it's took a, you to like, a, very uncomfortable conversation well, to have. Well, again, it's, a, it's not that case with like every family. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of men that are super, like super Catholic I just didn't really see that, but I think I didn't answer the part about me. Well, at 16, I was, you know, I think I was already old enough to say, like, hey, uh, mom, abuelita, I don't want to go to church anymore. Mm, and uh, then 16, uh, not much uh, not much later, I turned 18, I started going to, you know, going to community college, started hanging out with uh crowd of people that were into alternative belief systems so uh, I would go back home and be like hey well my friends and me we uh, we were praying out in like in the desert uh, just uh, conversing about spirits that kind of stuff so like the whole the Catholic church on the Catholic hold on me was already pretty loose so mm -hmm. it was uh, a lot easier for me to just uh, depart from the Catholic church yeah awesome but, well, moving away from the Catholic Church, which I can talk about oh, for days and how much, like, I have beef with them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's an understatement to say that, like, you know, political discourse in this country is the most partisan and divided it has ever been, uh, at least in recent memory. Um, in an era of Trump where civil discourse and fact-based arguments have seemingly flown out the window, as an artist who, you know, regularly works in political satire... What are your thoughts on the current state of not just political discourse, but public civility at large in this nation? Oh man, it's it's a it's kind of a free for all at this point. You know, I think I man, I I look back at some of the cartoons from like from the late eighties, early nineties, and sometimes I don't know, it just feels like. Sometimes it just feels that maybe things haven't really changed. Like, uh, it was probably the same thing back during um, Pete Wilson was governor of Califas, um, when Clinton was in office and Bush Jr. was in office. 
but I don't know. This kind of feels a little more. It's a little more raw, and also because I got I really don't remember like those times. But uh, as far as I've been looking, there wasn't really as much of a, of a discussion as to what is um, uh, politically acceptable to say. Um, who's who's speaking out, and can we find any dirt on this person? If we can, let's bring it up so then everything they say is being canceled. So it's a lot more raw. That that's what I'm seeing. It definitely feels like all political norms are out the window at this yeah. point. You know, <laughs> it's a completely three sixty degree difference from just a couple of years ago to where we currently are now. Yeah, you know, it definitely feels like. It's a new world, you know, as the oh, cliche yeah. goes. It's, it's, it's a whole different, you know, uh, playing field now. There was no Twitter back in the day. <laughs> nobody was digging through your hundreds, your thousands of tweets. And you're like, hey, this fool said this back in the day. Let's put it out there. Yeah, we're oh, living man. in a new age of accountability. Oh, of yeah. like going back. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting stuff. Because, um, like, you're saying, you're talking about, like, the civility, right, and, uh, and politics that's kind of like, or the normals, like the, like the norms. And uh, it's kind of when these moments, like the analysis that we have as like uh, Marxists, right, is um, you're seeing like the internal struggle, power struggle within yeah. the ruling class. So you're seeing like what normally for years, Democrats and Republicans were nominally the same, right? Like they had some minor differences. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, politics functioned pretty smoothly, uh, minus the corruption and scandals <laughs> and stuff like that and random stuff. Um, but now it's like you have like the power base like viciously fighting each other for control. Um, it's wild. We're living in that's manifesting and now like just ad hominem personal attacks. It's trying to turn. It's trying to turn into a more black and white kind of thing, and any touches of gray there are seen in between. Um, it's it brings up a problem. Or you get called out for your tones of gray. Like, hey, how come you're gray in this area? You know, it's either black and white. So if you're gray, that means you're black, or it means it's white. It's kind of like, almost like no winning. Yeah, there really but, is like no uh, middle ground, it kind of seems at like. At the same time, it's, you know, it, like that's what I, that's what I knew about when I, I was told that Trump was elected president. I was like, damn, you know, this is, uh, it's, I feel like it's going to be a, Trump is going to say like, Pretty much say anything every day, and you can make a whole like, illustration about it, and that that has been the case. <laughs> and I want to ask you, how does that feel? It literally feels like you can make a cartoon a day. Yeah, Trump has been in office for about eighteen months. It mm. feels like it's been almost like eighteen years. <laughs> you know, tiring this whole presidency um, is, you know, like uh, if and with the twenty-four hour news cycle too. Mm -hmm. uh, does it ever get tiring? You know, <laughs> everything you could. I think I can draw Trump in my sleep now. <laughs> um, but the thing is, uh, well, Trump says a lot of things, so you got to learn how to be more very selective of what he choose to draw or what he choose to criticize. Is otherwise, you know, it's you're gonna have to be drawing like twenty four seven all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, with that, um, with that, all with all that, what do you enjoy the most about doing editorial cartoons? Mm. Well, first off, it's the fact that um, I'm drawing it and people are reading it. I don't get a lot of hate mail, but when I do, it's very comforting. <laughs> yes, people out there are reading it, 
And it's not just people that agree with me, but people that really don't like what I'm drawing. So you don't get any uh, hater letters of the day? <laughs> uh, sometimes. Uh, lately, most of my hate mail has... Um, you know, because I'm drawn for Lalo, so uh, a lot of it is actually aimed at him. But since I was the I was the person that drew the illustration, the comic, you know, he, Lalo gives me credit. He usually is the one that emails me like, "Hey, you know, this is what they told me," and I was like, "Yes." So that means they told that to me as well. <laughs> uh, well, that actually that leads us right into our next question. Right. So you signed on multiple occasions that Lalo Alcaraz, author of the National Syndicate comic strip La Cucaracha. Was a, was a significant influence on you growing up, uh, not only in regards to drawing, but likewise with the sharp, witty social commentary and political satire that's in the strip. Um, you recently began contributing as a guest cartoonist on the strip, um, which back in May, I believe, was it? Is that yeah. when you started? Uh, what was it like not only being able to work under arguably one of your biggest influences, but in a sense, um, taking a sense of his flagship project? It's, man, uh, you know, I... I got into Lalo Caras' comics uh, at the time where I just moved from, from Tijuana and into the United States. Uh, I was, it wasn't so much like the political content, but just seeing that there was a Chicano uh, drawing, like, drawing comic strips. I've uh, uh, always been a fan of, uh, of the funnies, so just going through them one day, I, I was like, hey, you know, there's, a, there's one that's there's one guy that's drawing funnies and you know, he has a name that sounds as if he's Mexican just like me and or La Cucaracha mm -hmm. everybody knows the jingle so <laughs> I was like wow this is this is amazing and you know just like the the secret thought was it spoke to me in the back of my head I was like damn you know, imagine if you had a gig like that so yeah I noticed him from from day one in high school, when I was becoming more politicized, I was going through his comic strips again, and I was like, "Oh, damn! Like this, like, this dude is not just drawing like a cute uh, animal comics. He's actually putting some commentary of what's going on." So, and arguably, some of his best stuff is the editorials, not necessarily yeah. stuff that's regulated just to the strip oh, itself. Oh yeah. So uh, he's is very, very raw, very unafraid to speak his mind. Um, on later conversations that I've had with him, he was telling me how he would get in trouble for it, uh, and even on his early days, and I was just thinking like, man, that must be some exciting way to live. So how do, how does that whole process go? Like, how do you how do you how are you approached, or like, how does this whole process go of you like starting to be a guest um, mm -hmm. animator for the strip? Um, Let's see. I've I've met him a few times in the past as a as a fan. I think it was, but it was around the time I was drawn for the San Diego Free Press. Uh, there was a not the Comic Con, but the Comic Fest. They do it around here too. Um, the, one of the Barry Logan muralists. Uh, he told me, "Hey, Hunko, come over here. Like, I got you a guest spot in the Comic Fest." So I was like, all right, and I show up, and I, it was actually a panel, mm -hmm. and everybody was going to speak about their experiences as a cartoonist, and I had just happened to sit down right next to Lalo. So my mind was like, damn, I, does that mean I'm, a, I'm like on his level now? And, you know, we 
you know, we talked, we hung out for a bit, and um, I, was, I actually, I drove from San Bernardino, like, the day before, so I was going to head back the next day, and, you know, just a conversation, he he was like, hey, you know, so you're doing pretty good, and you're young cart- Chicano cartoons, let's keep in touch. I didn't really think that I was really going to hear from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, uh, a few weeks later, I get a call from uh, from the city of LA. They're putting together a show about the the what's riots, and they told me Lalcaraz gave us your name and told us to give you a call. So I was like, "Damn, that was fast." <laughs> <laughs> um, later conversations that I've had with like other artists in in LA, I, I would mention Lalo, and they would say, "Yeah, Lalo, he's a really cool guy." He, uh, he put my art in the show somewhere, so he's uh, he has a history of helping out other Chicano artists, mm-hmm. and it just kind of happened. Well, I mean, it's just it just went from there. I've made sure to you know, whatever um, illustration I made for whatever publication, uh, he would notice. Uh, he would like it. He would comment on it. He would uh, give uh, give props. So. I was already on, on his radar. Um, was it? Like, uh, if he had a, events like in, in San Diego or whatever, so like, uh, nah, he wouldn't. It's not that he would ask, like, hey, come help me out. I'll just show up and, like, hey, what's up, Lalo? You need anything? I'll help you out. Uh, he's a. And the good thing is that the the gig happened right after I was, I graduated from CSUSB. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just asked me like, "Hey, um, what's up? Are are you working? Are you doing anything? Because uh, right now I'm working on this project, and if it takes off, I'm gonna need somebody to help me out draw la cucaracha. Do you think it might be up for it?" And I was like, "Hell yeah!" So there was no intimidation. Like you were up to the task. Like, <laughs> right, right, yeah. yeah, I was up to the task. Uh, <laughs> I think in previous conversations that we had, I told him like what I was working with, so he was like, "All right, you know, he's he can take care of it, and he's a graphic designer, so he I don't have he didn't have to teach me how to use any of the software." Mm-hmm. So you're all well versed yeah. in all that. How how does it feel having your like work now being like put with such a, like a larger audience than? You know, I'm sure, like, part of being an artist, right, is, like, going from, like, like showing it to your family members and be like, look what I drew, to, like, now it's, like, a nationally syndicated well, thing. the good thing is that it's... And somehow it just happened that uh, after graduating from college, I, I've always been, like, an employed artist. Yeah. So... Work's so, always been good. Uh-huh. It's, it's been good. It's... I get to... Um, you know, finally, I'm I'm out of that point. I'm out of that spot where people approach to you and say like, "Hey, we'll we'll print your art, but we can't pay you. We can only you know exposure. That's the only pay that we'll give you." So I'm I'm not in that crowd. You don't get so paid with exposure good. anymore. You get no. paid in hard, <laughs> hard cash. <laughs> and oh yeah, it's great. It's um it's it's great to work in doing what you love to do. You know, I eventually, tr- it, it work is work, but but it's still great. Awesome. It's yeah, great well, I imagine. Love. Uh, working for somebody that inspired you to draw political cartoons in the beginning, you know, that's, it's, it's an honor. It comes full circle. Oh, yeah. Uh, and 
it's like my dad's always told me, you know, once uh, you reach a certain spot, you know, your duty is to help out the people that are coming up as well. And that's, I think, Lalo for that, for helping me uh, put my name out there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, last month, you made your debut at Comic-Con along with Lalo Acres, as well as making another appearance at this year's Chicano-Con down in Barrio Logan. Uh, tell us about your experience having such a large platform at Comic-Con and, again, along with, uh, at the side of uh, your mentor. Um, well, I, I the small correction, like the Comic-Con thing wasn't this year. It was the year before. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So. But, no, it's it was a milestone. Yeah, um, what was the experience sure. like? Like, tell us about that. Like, what's... Oh, it's, I just say that for people that... Um, I'm just glad I took all those... Um, it was like uh, speech classes in, in college because... Uh, public speaking? Uh, yeah, public speaking because uh, otherwise I wouldn't have made it. You know, it, you know, it, and everything went really fast too, you know. One, uh, one night you're like struggling to meet the deadline for, for a class in college. Then you're speaking to like uh, almost like 500 people and telling them about your work as a cartoonist. Oh man, it's. What's that like? What, what, what's that like being one of those? I've, I've been there with those halls. What's yeah. it like being in front of five hundred people, you know? And you literally get this show like um, your life's work, really. You know, what's that like? Mm, well, it's. That's uh, I learned. Uh, I learned a lot by being in the punk band. Is that if you're gonna go in front of a crowd, you know, just kind of roll with everything. If you make a mistake, just kind of roll with it and it's all part of the performance mm -hmm. um i already kind of already knew what i was going to say like hey well i'm from i'm hunko and i'm from this area and this is what i do and you know why i draw it's for this reason because i want to put my word out and i got something to say so i already had an idea what i was going to say but still the experience is yeah, it's amazing. You yeah. know, it's it's very nerve wracking, but uh, then you think about, would I rather do anything else? <laughs> <laughs> nah. So yeah. Let's right. let's do this. That's dope. <laughs> Great. You kind of uh, like touched on like being in a punk band, but so we're gonna ask a question kind of about along like your other artistic interests. Mm -hmm. So like you're you know a multidisciplined artist. Uh, on top of being a visual artist, you've also worked as a musician. Uh, you mentioned playing in a punk band for several years. Uh, what got you into music, and specifically, what attracted you to punk rock? Uh, man, I feel like I, I gotta make a clarification as well. Like, man, I, I was in a band, but I'm not sure if I would call myself a musician mm -hmm. because. But you can't play well. I, I can't play anything. <laughs> <laughs> I can't read music. Uh, mm, nothing. You can't read very punk rock. Yeah, that's what punk is against. Like, but yeah. It, 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 yeah, everything it turned it worked out. Um, in in high school, my carnal was into the punk scene, so and I was I I was really into reggae. Well, at the same time, I really like to analyze like the lyrics of whatever I was listening to. So a lot of popular music at the time, even nowadays, I just can't get into. I was like. I was like, what oh, are you 2000, saying? 2008 was about much of a wasteland back then as it is now. So, yes. so and then one one night I started listening to Casualty, so I'm like, oh, all right, this this, this is pretty good. 
I dig it. You know, it's not very philosophical, but you know, the feeling is right in there, and this is how I'm feeling right now. Mm-hmm. Um, then I um, started showing uh, some of the bands that I started listening to. I started showing them to, to the homeboy, Freddie, uh, and he was already playing with the guitar. So I was like, hey, one, like the next day, like, hey, you know, that song you played for me? Like, yeah, I, I learned how to play it on the guitar. You know, you should, uh, we should be like a duo or something. You can sing and I can play. I was like, I don't know how to sing. I was like, oh, neither any of the guys that are in the bands that I was listening to can, but just go for it. I was like, oh, all right, <laughs> do that. And it took a few years because, you know, it's just finding the other the other members of the band mm-hmm. but uh, me and Freddie kept practicing and then uh, finally we got the the whole band together and by that time I already knew people like hey can you put me in, me and my band on a show and I'm like yeah let's put you in the show so that's how it happened right. do you still do music or does the or does the art nah, take too much of uh, your time yeah I think um already dedicated I'm already dedicated 100% to to the art yeah and not to doing the music and and uh, the homeboy Freddy is he's in Arizona right now uh, pursuing his uh, PhD okay so everybody's already moved on to other projects uh, but without him I I don't really feel like being in a band anymore just yeah. don't feel like the same thing I, guess I feel you now you've also worked with musical artists on different in uh, different genres as well. You did the artwork for Cosmic Forces um, mixtape Warcry mm-hmm. and also on their upcoming one, um, Untamed Unchained. When, I, when you hear a whisper in the wind, sport like a jaguar in its motherfucking skin, I'm masked. Where I'm from, you ask, I know what, and I bang for the land. See the cool Klux Klan, put them in a body bag. Influence of the ancients, I follow them, strike them, mighty in battle, when I wear a dead animal, cause I'm fighting these white supremacists, they calling me a radical, practical guerrilla tactics, my combatant status is elite, mathematics. How did you and Jagged Threat meet? Like, what ultimately led you to contributing to the art work for the group's albums and their subsequent art? Yeah, well, um, it had to do with, uh, I was barely getting into, into Instagram at the time. And I just uh, came across his, his music one day, and I was like, yeah, and all this is, is really good, and I'm feeling it. Um, at the time, I was already like starting to expand a little more beyond punk rock and getting into hip-hop, mm-hmm. so underground kind of stuff, and uh, already like, listening to... Like Aslan Underground, El Vu. Yeah. So I was like, oh, hell yeah, this is um, like some like new artists, but like almost the same subject. Like, yeah, this this was up. Uh, that was then. Um, it was like a 2014-15. A uh, few years later, uh, those some of the bands that I mentioned, Aslan Underground, El Vu, they were gonna have a their first July event in. The Fourth of July, or um, in was it at Boyle Heights or East LA? I know they're not the same, so I had to make that distinction. Probably Boyle Heights, and yeah, I'm a, one of my friends uh, invited me. Uh, one of my friend he he plays in Tijuana. No, I think they're gonna perform that that night. So I went there with um, actually with my homeboy Freddie, who was in the band with me. Mm-hmm. 
and we just got there and all of a sudden I hear the familiar music and and the lyrics I was like oh I know this guy. Like I, I saw him on the ground many years ago. I spot like a jaguar. Ago. Yeah. So I saw him perform, and I was like, "Yeah, this is the guy. That's so cool." And so after he was done with the set, I was like, "Hey, carnal, that was dope." And I was like, "Yeah, no, thanks." So, um, like that was. I think that was as much as a communication we had that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, I found him in the in the ground, and I started following him and putting videos of. Of his performance for everybody to see, like, hey, check this guy out, so dope. And then we found out that he, we live pretty close to each other in uh, in the Inland Empire. Mm-hmm. So you know, we started saying, like, hey, you know, you're into the colonizing and all this stuff, and and you're a really good artist. You know, let's hang out. Like, yeah, let's hang out, cause man, like, going from a from San Diego to the Inland Empire, you're just like, damn, it's it's really quiet out here. Not much out there. Not much out there. It'd <laughs> be nice to hang out with somebody, <laughs> and yeah, that's uh, for the rest of my, uh, the rest of my time in the Inland Empire. It's like every night just hanging out with, with Jag. Later on, uh, Thread tagged along, so just the uh, getting uh, getting to meet more people that weren't to the same, same conversation topics as you were. It's just expanding the lot the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Now their their upcoming their upcoming mixtape, um, Untamed Unchained. It's not out quite yet. Probably mm-hmm. will be by the time we put this out. But um, describe the artwork on this a little bit. You know, we'll, we'll put up a picture with it. But um, yeah. explain the inspiration behind that. Um, well, uh, Jagged Thread. They're the guys with the ideas. I'm just the the one that executes them. Mm-hmm. But like they're uh, from the beginning, they always said that they want their music to be pan-indigenous. Like, that's something they embrace, pan-indigeneity. Uh, not so much that, oh, we're all indigenous and we're all the same. We can pick and choose whatever we like. It's just kind of put out a message that will, uh, that is understood by uh, Native people of different nations. Um Sometimes it'll just uh, reference uh, specific uh, nations in particular, giving shout-outs, um, acknowledging what other ancestors have done throughout uh, the Americas and, and their struggles. So that's, uh, that's what they wanted. Like, hey, we want, like, a, we want, like, a combination of all these, like, uh, historical areas. And for me, I was like, all right, well, that's, um, you already kind of by people explaining their ideas, you can already kind of gauge. I guess it's gonna be easy to execute, or it's gonna take some time. So I was like, oh, all right, it's gonna take some time to <laughs> execute, but but I like what they uh, what they're standing for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I already had a like they put out some names of some of the areas they wanted to cover: Totihuacan, Chichen Itza, and but also wanted to incorporate. Uh, stuff that might not be really out there. Um, they they wanted the the yakatas of of uh, Michoacan, which um, I wasn't very familiar with. Uh, so, because like, you you get to see a lot of the uh, a lot of areas that are still very well kept in like Machu Picchu, Teotihuacan, Chichen Itza, and here in the United States. Um, 
the first thing that came to mind was the Pueblos from New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And um, it, they told me it was going to be a nighttime scene. So I thought, all right, that's something that can go up in the sky. Uh, maybe not a constellation per se, but something that is can be seen from a distance. And I thought the Serpent Mound of Ohio and the like the the big uh, line artwork from Nazca in Peru. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, so put it all together, try to really find a, a way for everything to blend in. You know, a lot of the pictures that you see online of all these areas, they have different angles or different shades. So I was like, all right, it's trying to find one consistent light source so every everything seems to be like well incorpor- incorporated as best as I can, as, as I can put it. Yeah. It all comes comes together quite beautifully, yeah. actually. You know, it's, oh, especially since there there are multiple locations that don't really exist in one location altogether. Yeah. But you you bring them all together in such a way, especially with, like you said, the constellation and everything and how it lights up. It just looks beautiful. So everybody be on the lookout for that mixtape. I'm sure it'll be. Hell yeah, it'll, it'll be it'll be quite the quite the listen. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, moving on to the next question. Uh, who would you say are the most in- influential individuals in your life in your artwork? Well, uh, first and foremost, my family. You know, like I said, uh, a lot of people that I've known they don't have any support from their families, and uh, I've had all the support. So that's all the ones I have to put out there. First, uh, my parents. Uh, both my parents, they had an equal role into. And to getting me like my my knowledge of the arts, uh, my my brother, you know he's a, you know he he also has the artistic talents within himself, and especially with a uh, uh, my uh, storytelling uh, uh, flow, he has he plays a role because he's kind of like the opposite of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a he's a marine. He's a uh, less he's a little more rough around the edges. Uh, more, more, more blunt. Yeah. So we kind of have this dynamic, and we go back and forth, and I just think like, yeah, that's. I think from an outsider perspective, that'll be really funny. So I can put some of that into it. Uh, my my grandma, who's a, for me, she's a, kind of represents everything that's good in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my grandpa, rest in peace, because every time that I, every time I saw him, he. He would ask me like, "Hey, so how how you doing with the art?" He was also really supportive. Laro um, Caras, as I've mentioned already, and another uh, Mexican cartoonist, uh, Eduardo del Rio Rius. He's um, another guy that just a really also very political cartoonist and really funny as, mm-hmm. as well. Absolutely. What advice do you have for young artists and creative people who want to get into the business, especially those that want to send a positive, uplifting message? Well, first and foremost, practice every day. Every day, practice. Even just a little thing. It doesn't have to be something out there. Just uh, practice, push your limits. Um, I didn't, as a young artist, I didn't like drawing people. I didn't like drawing faces. I was like, man, it's going to come out all whack, but... It's, I come to a point where that's pretty much all I do. I draw people's caricatures. Mm-hmm. Practice, first and foremost. Um, be patient and be consistent. Uh, it's one of the things that I was always told when I decided to pursue 
uh, art uh, was that oh it's a very competitive field and you know you must really be you must be really good to succeed in it which is a uh, uh, yes and no you know nothing is set in stone nothing is guaranteed but um but you know don't let that don't let that keep you from pursuing the arts if that is what you really want um find your niche as well you know there's a um, somebody uh, somebody was mentioning how there was like a oversaturation of uh virgenes de guadalupe in in the in a, like chicano art districts you know but so you know what you draw may be what everybody else is doing but you might find that you have a particular niche in art mm-hmm. um when i was still when i was doing the art for la prensa and southwestern college you know somebody told me like you know that you just found your niche like this is what you're really good at drawing like, political cartoons drawing comics you know keep doing it i can do you know i paint i i can sculpt but overall my niche really became my cartoons mm-hmm. so that's uh you can do everything okay but uh, cartoons that's as me mero mole as you could say and again practice every day be patient but be consistent absolutely oh what? and um you know always ask permission first but if if it's taking you nowhere then you know it's better to it's better to be sorry than to keep asking permission mhm Yeah, absolutely. Where can people find you and follow you online to see your work and get all the latest updates for shows, promotions, and other events? Yeah, this, uh, I was gonna say my website, but well, I keep my website in mind. I'm still like I, I still have a lot of updates to do on it, but huncocanche.com. Uh, but um, the one that like one uh, my social media that. It's getting updated the most often would be Instagram, uh, Instagram.com slash Junko Canche. Um, on the same na- handle, Junko Canche. Just find me on, like, on Facebook, on Twitter. And uh, how's the other one? Uh, no, not on... Uh, yeah, uh, Facebook, Twitter. I was going to say Snapchat. Add me on Snapchat to get in. I don't really... I'm not there too often, but eh. Ever's um pocho.com you know yeah uh, respect to pocho.com um if um still have a, a few more comics la cucaracha comics to they're going to come in and uh, other than the newspaper the best place to read them would also be uh, gocomics.com/lacucaracha And how long, how much longer will you be doing um, guesswork on the Hukaracha? Hmm, um, so, because uh, the comics I I draw them like two weeks in advance, so like uh, from from right now, there's still gonna be like at least two more weeks of uh, comics that are gonna be drawn by me. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, uh, I think Nalo uh, when he first got in touch with me about it, he said it was only. It would be like for a month or two months, and I'm, I'm 
I'm okay with it. Like, <laughs> still going on for a few more months. <laughs> I like um not not the not get sidetracked. I like the uh, the, the Columbus uh, space alien. Oh, one. What, what was the story behind that one? I want. Well, uh, the story about it was, uh, I actually had it came from a a, a previous like, Columbus Day cartoon that that I drew for Pocho. I had nothing to do with La Cucaracha or anything. I just thought like, I think I was just thinking about um, Stephen Hawking. Man, I was gonna say Stephen King. Well, all right, glad I caught myself. <laughs> I was thinking about Stephen Hawking, how he said that, well, if there really is uh, life out there in other parts of the galaxy or other galaxies, if they came over here to our planet, it might not be good for us. It might just be you know, just the same thing happened to Native people in Columbus. Mm-hmm. So I thought, all right, you know, maybe just uh, kind of reflect on it, just draw a little gray alien <laughs> Yeah, dressed as Christopher Columbus, like, hey, I just found, I found a new planet, <laughs> you know, and we already know what's going to happen from there. And um, in the beginning, uh, Lalo Wood, uh, he was the one that uh, wrote the uh, the scripts for the comics. And later on, he was asking me, hey, you know, you have any ideas? Just shoot it my way. And I think I was running, uh, my well was drawn really, it was running short that week, and I thought about the alien uh, that character I drew was like, all right, you know, it's gonna, I'm gonna rip off myself, but who cares? <laughs> I was like, hey, Lalo. So I just thought about this idea of Space Columbus. And I drew a little sketch of the little gray Columbus alien talking with the main characters, Eddie and Cuco. And he said, yeah, I really like the, I like that sketch, you know, come up with six different <laughs> comics, uh, tell a story about it, and we'll see. We'll see what's up, man. Yeah. I, I think that was like might have been like my first time like drawing the you know writing the scripts to the comics all by myself and mm-hmm. yeah he just had a few corrections here and there but otherwise like he really liked them yeah that that, yeah. that was among one of my favorite thus far oh, I was like, <laughs> I got a kick yeah. out of that one um, any uh, any closing comments or anything you'd like to say to let our listeners know um just that I'm really happy that I'm here. Yeah, talking to you guys, just um, very happy with uh, the way everything's been working out and for me and my art and, and my art, and you know it's we still have like a few more years of Trump, you know just what on me gente, um, quoting Bill and Ted to be excellent to each other and party on, <laughs> you know it's. Uh, times may seem rough, but if we stick by each other, uh, we're gonna we're gonna do all right. Excellent. Well, thank you, brother. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank, thank you for taking the time on. to talk to us. Oh, thank you, thank guys. You. This episode of Step Off Radio is recorded at the Justice Center, San Diego, and our music was done by DJ Root. This has been a Step Off Magazine production. <laughs>